and thank you all for being here today. So glad you're willing to come out and find a, an alternate parking location. Oh, oh, look at that. Look at that. Service with a smile. Thank you, Brett. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. But you made it out here. Uh, we're diving back into the Jesus series today. Uh, last Sunday, we were very fortunate to have uh, Lori Droxler give the message while I was away. And the crowd goes wild. There they go. Yep. Thank you for that, Lori. If you missed Lori's message, I would encourage you to uh, listen to that. Uh, you can find it as a podcast. Just go to your podcast app and write Hope C.C. Delco. Just search for Hope C.C. Delco, all one word. You can find it there. You can also find that message on our website. You can find it on our YouTube page. Um, but I appreciate you speaking, Lori. Yep, and so is that guy. Um, I was encouraged by it, and I was also reminded about what it means to be a church and who we are. Early May. And so those of you who have not participated in this yet, guess what? It's totally fine. You might be thinking, wait, we're like a month and a half into this, and I haven't been doing any Bible readings. I don't know what's going on. That's fine. You can start tomorrow because that's what we're doing. You can jump in at any time. The readings are listed there in your bulletin. You can check them out. Just read a small passage each day, Monday through Saturday, and then you have the option of showing up at a small group to talk about what you've read, and then you show up on Sunday morning, and I'm going to talk about something that you read during the week. So no guilt, right? No shame if you've missed out. Just jump in tomorrow, right? You can jump in at any point, and we encourage you to do that. Uh, years ago, at, um, at our last church, I was the uh, children's pastor, and uh, one of the things we did at that church is we had a very big vacation Bible school. Anybody know what a vacation Bible school is? Some of you know about vacation Bible school. Uh, some of us have fond memories of vacation Bible school. Some of us have traumatic memories of vacation Bible school. I have both, um, being a kid and enjoying it and also being an adult and having to work it. Um, but we had a big vacation Bible school. Our church was about 260 people, and about 100 kids came out to Bible school. And we needed a whole lot of volunteers to run the Bible school. And so we did some volunteer recruitment. We did a lot of volunteer recruitment. And the way that I recruit volunteers is basically you make big announcements, smaller announcements, and then individual invitations. That was what we were doing. So big announcements, church-wide email, church-wide announcements, smaller announcements, emails to specific groups, and then personal invitations. Well, one, one day... And during the week, I got a call from one of our church members who wanted to give me a little lecture about how to go about recruiting volunteers. Do you ever get a lecture from somebody at your work, somebody telling you how to do your job better than you? You never got that at work, right? Somebody telling you how to do your job? Well, it just so happens this was a very friendly guy and a friend of mine telling me how I should go about volunteer recruitment. And he said, forget all these emails that you're sending out. Just stand in the sanctuary, and as people come and go, talk to them. Hey, do you want to volunteer? Hey, do you want to volunteer? Hey, do you want to volunteer? And I said, okay. That's great. That's wonderful. Now, practically speaking, I wasn't able to do that because I was literally in Sunday school or children's church during those times. But I said, okay, that's fine. I said, do you know how many volunteers we need to run Vacation Bible School? He said, I don't know. I said, we need 70. Then I asked him, do you know how many volunteers we have? He said, I don't know. I said, 72. And he said, okay. And then we moved on to talking about other things. Do you know why? Because you can't argue with results, all right? And so this friend of mine, he called with an idea of how we could be more effective in recruiting volunteers, but it turns out the method we were using had already yielded results. And so we moved on to another topic of conversation. You can't argue with results. You've heard that phrase, haven't you? You can't argue with results. And all of us, at some point, we see something happening in the world, and we think to ourselves, hmm, that's not how I would have done it. Did you ever do that? Maybe at school or at work around the community? For the past several weeks, I've been watching this work being done on the bridge, thinking, hmm, that's not how I would do it. You're building a footpath over top of a broken bridge. Hmm, that's not how I would do it, right? But they got it done. 
I mean, I'm not going to walk over it. You can't. But they got it done, right? And what do I know about building bridges? I don't know anything about building bridges. And, and so I can't, at least I shouldn't, argue with results. They got it done. You can't argue with results. Maybe the saying should be you shouldn't argue with results. Because when we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, there are results. There is life change. There is healing. There are miracles. There is fruit being produced in the life of Jesus. You see the work that he is doing yields results, and yet some people ignored those results or questioned those results. A few weeks ago, we talked about the ministry of John the Baptist and how he had these two groups of people that came out to him. Basically, you had the righteous and the sinners. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? Two different groups of people, the righteous and the sinners. And it sounds like we would want to be a part of this group because the righteous, well, that's righteous. Don't we want to be righteous? And the sinners, well, who wants to be a sinner? But when we see these two groups of people come out, we see that the righteous group, they've got this pride in their hearts. And the members of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come out to examine and put the ministry of John the Baptist to the test. They're there to judge. They're there to assess. They're not there to receive. And yet, among the sinners, you see humility, people who are ready to receive, people who know they are far from God. And so there's humility here where there's pride here. And Jesus encounters the same groups of people, sinners and righteous, people who think they've got it all figured out and are putting Jesus to the test. Meet my standards, Jesus. Tell me what I want to hear. I am assessing your ministry. I'm not receiving. I'm assessing. And then people over here in the sinner's community that are open and humble and ready to receive from Jesus. At this point in the Jesus series, we need to clarify something. Not all of the sinners, not all of them, possessed that humility, okay? Not all of them were willing to accept what Jesus had to say. I mean, a lot of them were, but some of them weren't. Likewise, over here, among the righteous... Among the members of the religious establishment, not all of them had pride in their hearts. Some were willing to hear what Jesus had to say. Some were willing to consider what Jesus had to offer, what he was doing. Some possessed that humility. One of those men was a man named Nicodemus. He looked at what Jesus was doing, and he saw results. He saw the fruit. And so he has a conversation with Jesus. Let's take a look at that. Joyce read the beginning of that conversation for us. It's from John chapter 3. And so we meet this man named Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. <clears throat> he came to Jesus at night. That's our first question. Why? Why at night? Was he having this meeting with Jesus in secret? Was he having this meeting, you know, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the other members of the Sanhedrin were not aware this is happening? Why at night? We don't know for sure why at night. But he came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, and so right away, a sign of respect, he's calling him Rabbi, he's calling him teacher, he's acknowledging that Jesus is a teacher. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. We know this. Who's the we? Again, we're left to speculate. But it's likely that Nicodemus was a part of a small group of people among the Sanhedrin who were actually open to Jesus being a prophet, maybe even the Messiah. And so it seems like Nicodemus is here on behalf of the minority among the religious establishment who are open to hearing from Jesus. And here's what he says. We know you are a teacher who has come from God 
And why do they know that? For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Let's notice what Nicodemus doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, you know, all of us who are members of the Sanhedrin, uh, we've been listening to your teachings, and everything you're saying aligns with our beliefs about God. And everything you're teaching, I mean, you're just saying everything that we already believe to be true. He doesn't say that because it's likely that the ideas that Jesus was putting forth did not align with what they already believed about God. Regardless, regardless, Nicodemus sees the fruit. I mean, there's miracles being performed. There's water being turned into wine, and we don't know if Nicodemus knew about that, but there were sick that were being healed, and he knew about that. There were people with leprosy, this incurable disease at that time, that were being cured and healed. And there were some members of the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment, who saw those miracles being performed and said, eh, it's by some kind of power of Satan that he's performing these miracles. And Nicodemus thinks, what? No. He has to be from God. No one could perform the signs that Jesus is performing if God were not with him. He's seeing the signs, and they opened up his mind. He saw the signs, okay? Saw the signs being performed, and he knew that it had to be from God. Now, notice here that Jesus interrupts the conversation. Nicodemus, whatever he had to say or whatever questions that he has to ask, Jesus interrupts and starts to teach Nicodemus something. Now, we'll see Jesus do this because Jesus, in some ways, he's like us because he was human, but in other ways, he was very different from us. And Jesus knows what's going on in a person's heart. He knows a person's motivations, and so he knows why Nicodemus is there, and Nicodemus doesn't need to say anything. And so Jesus interjects with this teaching. Here's what he says, verse, what is that? Verse 3. I need a larger print Bible. Okay. Verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Where, where, where's this coming from, Jesus? Are we talking about the kingdom of God? Are we talking, what, what is this? No one can see can see it, the kingdom of God, unless they're born again. And that brings us to a much bigger topic of kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? What is Jesus referring to? Well, sometimes the kingdom of God, that terminology is simply used to refer to heaven. But there's a much bigger idea of kingdom, of what kingdom is about. I mean, a kingdom is an order. It's a government. It's a system, right? So there's a kingdom of God, and then there are all the governments of this world, all the kingdoms of this world. It says, Nicodemus, if you actually want to see the kingdom of God in action, God's perfect kingdom, then you must be born again. If you want to see it, you must be born again. I'm not sure exactly why, but that terminology, born again, has become somewhat controversial over the years and kind of referred to a, a type of Christianity. But it's like, no, it's, it's a very simple idea, and, and Peter uses that same terminology, and, and Paul uses different terminology, just this idea of being regenerated. A new you. The old is gone. The new is come. Paul talks about this being reshaped and remolded into the image of Christ. He says, if you want to see it, if you want to see the kingdom of God in action, then you must be born again. Well, how can, there's Nicodemus, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely, I mean, Jesus, surely you can't be speaking literally. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter, not just see it, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. 
And some people get confused by that verse. Jesus, are you talking about the same thing? Or are you talking about two different things? Are you contrasting two things? Well, sometimes, here's a little tip for you in reading the Bible. Sometimes if you just keep reading, our questions get answered. Jesus continues, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And so this is, there's this idea of a, a physical birth, right? Born through water, right? And a woman's water breaks, and a child is born, right? That's going to happen. The water breaks, and the child is born. So there's a physical birth, but Jesus is saying, but then there needs to be another birth, a spiritual rebirth, flesh and then spirit. And so coming into this world naturally is not enough. You need to have a spiritual rebirth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not, he's talking to Nicodemus, remember? He says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And then Jesus starts with this new idea, or at least it seems like a new idea, to explain the type of thing that he's talking about to Nicodemus. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Okay, now we're talking about wind, now we're talking about the Spirit, having a spiritual rebirth. I mean, I just imagine that Nicodemus is pondering these things, but they're not, they're not exactly clear. Now, one thing we lose in the English translation, there's a little bit of wordplay here, because the Greek word pneuma refers to both wind and the Spirit. And so Jesus is saying, you're familiar with the phenomenon of wind. You can hear the sound it makes, even though wind itself doesn't make a sound. It's just as it moves through the trees, you can hear it. You can feel it. You can see it in action. But Nicodemus, you don't know where it comes from. And you don't know where it's going. And you can't control it, right? Now, I was never a great, like, science student. So I still don't know where wind comes from. I mean, you're probably smarter than me. You probably know the phenomenon that causes wind. But back then, it's like, we don't know where wind comes from. We just know it exists. And we see it, and we hear it, and we see the damage that it causes, but there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, all those, these years later, there's still little we can do about strong winds. Look at the damage that's caused by storms and hurricanes and tornadoes and all these things. He says, the Spirit's like that. I mean, you don't really understand where it came from. You don't understand where it's going. You don't understand how it works. But, but you see it in action. And you hear it. And isn't that the truth about Nicodemus? He says, I see the signs you are performing. And so here's Jesus saying, you can see the signs, but you still don't understand the Spirit. Nicodemus continues, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. And I think if it were me there, I'd be like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What are you talking about? Wind and Spirit and all this stuff. How can this be? Verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Nicodemus, and you do not understand these things? Some fun facts about Nicodemus. We're not exactly sure who he was or what position that he had, but when Jesus refers to him as Israel's teacher, it's very possible, it's in fact very likely, that Nicodemus was the scholar among the Sanhedrin, that he did not hold a political position but he did hold the position of a scholar. He sat in Moses' seat because that would make him the teacher of the teachers, the teachers in the Sanhedrin. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're the teacher. <laughs> you know, and perhaps you sit in the seat of Moses and you don't understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, I think the King James says, verily, verily, which is very dramatic. Jesus, I'm telling you the truth here. 
I tell you, what we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? I'm trying to explain matters to you. I'm trying to make a parallel between the world that you understand and the world that you don't understand. And Nicodemus, I'm just telling you stuff that I know and stuff that I've seen. And later on, Jesus will explain that. You know, there's a difference between people who come from earth and the one who has come from above. Jesus has come from above. He's seen how the kingdom of heaven works. He knows what he's talking about. If I've spoken to you of these earthly things and you don't understand, how will you understand these spiritual things, these heavenly things? Here he explains, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, which is a term Jesus uses to refer to himself. And just, here we go. Then Jesus says something. I mean, if you think this is confusing up to this point. Then he says something to Nicodemus that made no sense in the moment. He says to him, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Again, Son of Man, a term Jesus uses to refer to himself. So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay. <laughs> what? Now, here's what Nicodemus did understand as the teacher, as the man who probably sat in the seat of Moses. He understood his own history, the history of the Israelites. And once upon a time, way back in the Old Testament, way back in the time of Moses, way back in the book of Numbers, there's this incident that takes place that you can read about where snakes are going through the Israelite community and biting people, and they were being poisoned, and they died, right? But God told Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a pole. I want you to make a snake and put it up on the pole and lift up that snake, and everybody who looks at it will be healed. And if you think that sounds strange, you are right. But God told Moses to do a lot of very strange things up to that point. And Moses is like, okay, just another strange thing God's telling me to do. And so he does it, and he lifts that snake up on the pole, and everyone who looks at it, and that's what he's going to tell Can you imagine what he had to tell people? Listen, I don't have any anti-venom, uh, but I got a snake on a pole, so if you all just want to look up at it, you'll be healed. But everyone who did, everyone who took that leap of faith and believed in this bizarre thing, they were healed. They were healed. Saved, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, just like Moses lifted up that snake, I will be lifted up, and everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. Now, there's something that happens between this verse and the next, between verse 15 and 16. We're not exactly sure here. If you have a red letter Bible, verse 16 and on might be in red, or it might be in black here. And so Jesus either continues to speak to Nicodemus or something else happens. That conversation is finished, and then John, the author of the book, jumps in to give his commentary. Here's what I think happened. I think Jesus says to Nicodemus this last statement that everyone who believes may have eternal life. I think that's the end of the conversation. And then I think John jumps in with his explanation. John has given us this narrative of what's happened. He's given us this record. And now John jumps back in to say, let me explain, reader, what Jesus is talking about here. And we're given verse 16. And if you ever went to vacation Bible school as a kid, you probably heard John 3.16, but here it is in context. Again, Jesus has had this conversation. John jumps in with his commentary, and he says, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And John is playing with the language here, and he's actually using improper grammar to convey grammar to convey this idea. Believe in, that was poor grammar in Greek, but it's this idea of putting your trust in, believe in, right? Not just believe that Jesus exists, but putting your trust in. And so there's this contrast, and we talk about this a lot at Hope. There is this contrast. It's one thing to believe in yourself. I'm putting my trust in myself. I'm good enough to be redeemed. I'm putting my trust in my own righteousness. I do the, all, all the right stuff, right? It's one thing to put your trust in yourself. It's another thing to say I'm putting my belief in, my trust in Jesus. And John explains for us that if you put, take your trust off yourself and place it where it belongs, in Jesus, and everyone who does that will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God sent Jesus into this world, not for judgment's sake, not for the sake of condemnation, but for the sake of salvation. And John continues to explain what this means. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. And so here's the idea. God did not need to send his son into this world to condemn us because we were already condemned. We condemned ourselves already. We were already condemned. Jesus enters in not to do that because that work's already been done. He comes to reverse that work. He enters into this world to save us. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. All right, and this, this is why... One of the reasons why I believe it's John writing this. He's giving us this explanation. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they have done that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And it's just this very simple thing that Jesus has come into this world and, you know, the question of, well, what is it that holds somebody back from receiving Jesus? There's so many ways to answer that question. Why would someone, I mean, again, the free gift of salvation, the free gift of forgiveness of sins, the free gift of heaven has been offered to everyone. What would prevent someone from accepting it? And John says, I'll tell you, one of the things, one of the big reasons, is because people just prefer to keep doing what they're doing. They're hiding in the darkness. They're doing evil things, things that do not please God. And they want to keep those things a secret. Where Jesus comes as a light into this world and wants to expose that darkness, bring it into the light so there can be healing and restoration. And so, my question for you is, <laughs> will you, as we go forward in this series, will you take on an attitude of Nicodemus? Will you see the signs of Jesus? Will you consider what he has to say? Will you contemplate what he has to say? Will you have that humble approach? Will you see the fruit of his ministry? And are you open, whether you're brand new to Christianity or whether you've been around for a while, are you open to having your beliefs altered or shifted based on what Jesus says? See his fruit. See his ministry. See what he does and adjust our approach to faith based on the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. 
I imagine that Nicodemus walked away from this conversation with more questions than answers. There's this idea that we um, came up with several years ago watching a, a video series in small group. This idea of putting pebbles in people's shoes. Do you know, that? you know what that feels like when there's a pebble in your shoe? Just something you can't ignore, right? I feel like Jesus put some pebbles in the, in the sandal of Nicodemus, right? We're just like, what, what was that? Just these thoughts that he can't ignore, these ideas that he can't ignore. And Nicodemus continued to contemplate these ideas. And here's what we know. And I'm giving give you a little glimpse into the future. Here's what we know about Nicodemus. He continued to observe the ministry of Jesus. He continued to have that humble spirit towards Jesus. And on that night, in the middle of the night, when Jesus was arrested by the Sanhedrin and put on trial, Nicodemus was not invited to that trial. But he did stand at the foot of the cross, and he was there to help bury Jesus, and he did become a member of the first church, right? And so here was this man who had every right to hold on to his righteousness, but because of that humility and that openness, he received the teachings of Jesus. And can you imagine what it was like <laughs> as Nicodemus stood there and watched Jesus lifted up, lifted up on that cross and said, ah, oh, that's what he was talking about. Moses lifted up a snake in the desert so the Son of Man will be lifted. Whoa! That's what he was talking about. And if that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what will, all right? <laughs> and so, here's the challenge to all of us. Let's keep going through this series. Let's look at the life of Jesus, and let's keep an open heart, and let's keep an open mind, because whether you've been a Christian, like I said, if you're new to this, or you've been studying this stuff for decades, there's still more for us to learn, still room for us to grow. And we will continue to grow as long as we hold on to that humble spirit and have that attitude of Nicodemus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, you know where we struggle. You know our human nature. You know how we're different from you. And Father God, we're all tempted to give in to that prideful spirit. We're all tempted to ignore the signs that you have put in our life. And so Father, I just pray against that pride. I pray against that arrogance. I pray that you would give each one of us a humility. Keep us open to receiving from you. No matter how long we've been following you, Jesus, make us perpetually open to receiving from you. Father, we thank you for giving us this worship service, and now that this worship service has concluded, we pray that you would allow our worship of you to continue. Father God, let us worship you with our lives. Let us worship you by the way that we love and serve one another, and by the way that we love and serve you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.